Hello and a very festive welcome. I'm Dr Joanna Bucknell and you are listening to episode 20 of Tate, that's T-A-I-T, which is short for Talking About Immersive Theatre. Tate is quite simply a podcast about immersive, interactive and participative performance. I catch up with all kinds of immersive folk to chat about their work, usually in the places and spaces where they're making it. So no muss, no fuss. Here is episode 20. I'm here at the Theatre Royal Stratford East uh, with Executive Director of Zoo UK, Georges Lopez-Ramos. Hello and welcome. Hello. <laughs> so, Georges, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background and your training? Okay. Um, my background is originally from theatre, um, street theatre, site-specific theatre, physical theatre, about 15 years ago. And because I started working in theatre in Brazil, there's also an early influence from Boal's work. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough to meet and work with Boal before he passed away. Um, So even though that's not the work that I do today, it's one of the early influences of uh, our interest in public space, uh, social and political work within yeah. theatre. Um, but yeah, that was that was early. And where did you train? What kind of uh, sort of course did you do? So I came to the UK to an international foundation course followed by the European Theatre Arts course at Rose Bruford. Ah, okay. So I was one of the first graduates of that course. Um, and that, yeah, that helped at that time anyway, uh, really shape my understanding of what would what was possible as a theatre maker mm-hmm. rather than the theatre actor or director or mm-hmm. writer or designer or producer, but um, the, this idea of a, of a theatre maker yeah. and that uh, various tools and disciplines were at your disposal for a particular intention. Mm-hmm. And although at that time I probably didn't put them to the best use, that, that for sure that influenced the way yeah. I approached <laughs> theatre making after that. Yeah. Well, I think it's really interesting because there seem to be little pockets where practitioners who are involved in immersion have kind of come out of. So mm-hmm. I speak to a lot of people who came out of Exeter, mm-hmm. but also lots of people who came out of that course at Rose Bruford. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. really interesting the influence those educational institutions are having kind of on the development and the emergence of the immersive kind of theatre uh, trend in the UK. Yeah, but what, I think what's also important to point out is that whilst in that course, we were taken to see other work, existing work, mm-hmm. which at that time wasn't being called immersive. No, the word no, wasn't around. No, no, not at all. And one of those companies was Paraactive. Mm-hmm. And one of the directors was Percy Jajimaravala, who's now co-director of Zadju. So um, her work in the 90s precedes um, this wave of immersive theatre. And, mm-hmm. and although they weren't calling it immersive, Every single element of audience care, the dramaturgy of um, the, the dramaturgy that considers the audience's role as essential in its development, mm-hmm. uh, rhythm, space, site specificity, and so on. Yeah. So I remember seeing Onion Bar when I was in my first year, oh, wow. and that was the first relation, uh, the first kind of understanding I had of mm-hmm. uh, of that potential. It's interesting because I, I can't, even though I've been studying this for a long time, and I, when I was doing my PhD and I started in 2006, no one was using the term immersive then either. And so 
my whole PhD talks about participative <laughs> and participatory and engagement and lots of the work was being framed in that way and even now I can't quite pinpoint when that shift happened when people started to label it immersive mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of it's really interesting you're right there's there's actually a huge precursor of work that influenced me when I was an undergraduate and a master's and a PhD student that came out of like kind of very different contexts as well to theatre as mm-hmm. well so I think that's really interesting to try and track sort of the genealogy and when that when did that happen did it happen in in kind of the press mm. is it a term that came out of that especially because most practitioners I talk to feel a little bit uncomfortable with the term immersive so how mm. do you feel about oh definitely that and, word? and just one more thing about that time is that uh, Zhaj's work comes very much from a strong punk influence yeah. and also uh, as an associate artist of La Pocha Nostra, Guillermo Gomez Peña La Pocha Nostra, she's also brought that very strong uh, political body-based live art uh, aspect yeah. to, to the work. So although immersive as a word wasn't around, those elements have continued throughout Absolutely. as sort of foundations of what we do. And um, so in relation to uh, your question, which was <laughs> I just forgot. Yeah, so the, the, that, the term immersive kind of. How oh do yeah, feel how do we feel? Well, we, we don't feel very comfortable. No. We don't feel very comfortable at all. Uh, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, is because uh, there is this assumption that one can create immersive work, mm. and purely on a on a kind of understanding of the audience's experience, you you can't immerse someone that. That doesn't want to be immersed no, and no. therefore the person who should be saying something is immersive or not or they've been immersed by it or not is the participant Absolutely. so if they want to say wow i've been i felt really immersed by this or i've um accepted this invitation and i've allowed myself to be immersed by this so uh, that's why it, it's already starts there um, but then there's also other issues such as almost every piece of marketing or uh, communication today in relation to not just theatre, no, fashion, corporate events, everything is immersive. So, or visceral. It's immersive um, or visceral. Exactly. And then you go, well, then it, it probably means nothing. Yeah. Uh, and it and therefore it, it just becomes useless. It's as going a term. to be the same term, the same thing that ha- happened to happenings, isn't mm. it? It's kind of and and I think a lot of practitioners are actually now distancing themselves from that term and lots of other people I've spoken to as well now start to refer to their work as interactive mm-hmm. or having uh, a care for audience mm. rather than kind of using that term. But I think at the moment producers still push quite oh, yeah. hard to have to make sure that term is yeah. associated to the kind of the work. And and we're also aware that some people come across our work because of that term. Mm. So Absolutely. we also don't want to uh, work against that. We have been talking about this for years now yeah. <laughs> um, and f- I think there's around six or seven academic books that have come out in the last six or seven years that mention our work within the realm of immersive theatre. Yeah. And so it is useful to acknowledge the relevance or impact our work has or has had or in that field. Mm-hmm. Um, and to what extent we've been a positive reference for best practice, Absolutely. for care for audiences, yeah. um, and the ethics uh, of what behaviours we encourage in audiences as well, which is one of the things we're very uh, concerned about. But I think 
apart from that way of filtering uh, new audiences to your work, which is a useful thing, you know, mm -hmm. people are coming to binaural dinner dates and when we ask, okay, we haven't seen you before, well, how did you hear about the work? They yeah. say, well, I googled immersive theatre. Uh, it, that took me to out. Time Out and yeah. I saw the list in Time Out and you were there. So, I have a section now, specifically. So that there is something yeah. useful about that of for course. new audiences. But in terms of discussing the practice and developing the practice, I think is not is certainly not enough. Yeah, yeah I agree. I think it's become a really elastic and nebulous term. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> so Zoo K was formerly known as the Kura Era and Paraactive. That's correct. And you began making work in 2001 as a kind of company, is that correct? So Paraactive started earlier. Yeah. Um, and Zakora would have started in 2001. Yeah. And then it was in 2006 that both companies came together to make Hotel Madea. Uh -huh. And as a result of that six year long process of making that <laughs> mammoth beast of a show, yeah. uh, we decided that we just wanted to make the same things and therefore there was no need for two separate companies. Okay. So we applied to the Arts Council and then we got a grant to merge and develop the next phase of the work. Great. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about how you came to kind of work together and uh, how you sort of formed through that Arts Council funding bid? Right, so before that Arts Council um, moment, which was around 2011, we'd worked together for almost six years then, uh, when we came together in 2006, there was a, a mutual desire to work with what the other was bringing. So Percy Jaji was bringing that incredible um, psychophysical training legacy of uh, Jerzy Grotowski, but also the work Paraktiv had been doing in developing that. So the, the incredible precision, attention to detail mm. uh, and the depth of work, uh, regardless of the form. Uh, as well as uh, Jaji's uh, solo work with Guillermo Gomez Peña and that legacy uh, of the live arts, you know, very political, body-based work. There's a, very there's a very particular integrity, I think, that sits I think that's a great of choice of words. Yeah. Integrity is, is very much what I saw when uh, seeing uh, Jaji as a collaborator. And when talking to Jaji, I think what she was seeking from what Zekora Wuda had been doing was the, the sort of much more horizontal network building, cross-disciplinary uh, experiments that we'd, we'd been doing since 2001 on various sites and countries. And so uh, Paraktiv was very much an East London embedded mm -hmm. laboratory work. Uh, very deep and, and very much connected to several communities in, in East London. Yeah. And Zakora Uda was already born in an international group of people. So yeah. we'd already visited more than 10 countries and done 14 productions in three years yeah. because we were kind of quite immediate in responses to spaces and yeah. different approaches. So uh, we brought an entirely different way of making and I think we were both really interested in the other's way of making and, and potentially having the best of both. Mm -hmm. And so was it that getting that funding and being able to develop kind of together, was it getting the funding really that kind of consolidated that relationship? I No, I think what consolidated the relationship uh, was making Hotel Madeira. 
mm-hmm. because we committed to creating a piece of work which was in many ways impossible to be created and presented. Absolutely. Uh, we had come from very, a very successful project before where we toured the UK, 12 venues, and when we approached them with an overnight proposition, 11 of those venues straight away just said no. If you make more of the same, yes. If you're making this thing, no. One festival sort of said, okay, let's try. Uh, But but what I heard from venues, festivals, funders, and uh, marketing people at that time was there is no audience for this work. Wow. (laughs) And that rings very strongly. Still, I can hear it today. Yeah, yeah. uh, we had nothing, we didn't have funding to make Hotamadeh, mm-hmm. we didn't have a venue to make Hotamadeh in, we didn't have uh, the cast, so we had to basically go six months in Brazil, six months in the UK, and anyone who wanted to join this adventure just carried on coming back, and then we developed training, we visited several spaces in the, in the northeast of Brazil that have a tradition of overnight rituals. Mm. So we, we were researching the effect of overnight of musical rhythms in the brain mm-hmm. for staying awake through movement. We were re- re- researching physical training methodologies for applying uh, to an encounter where both audience and actors play roles mm-hmm. and so on. As well as at the same time looking at interactive technologies or multimedia technologies that could enhance this overnight mm-hmm. um, experience. I mean, there was no other word for it. What were the kind of reservations that you came up against in people basically just going, no? <laughs> Every single one. Just, what, just... Uh, oh, it's too long, it's too expensive, is, uh, is surely you won't be good enough to keep audiences interested over six hours, especially overnight, on every level, on every level. And so that was uh, incredible because once we made the decision to make it, Mm -hmm. regardless of how long it took, Mm -hmm. uh, we thought it was going to take two or three years, it took six. Mm -hmm. Um, We just carried on working. And the moment we would get a venue or a site or a partner or an ally anywhere we would just grab that and yeah. use that as an opportunity to present so when we presented at the arcola in 2009 it was almost eight hours long yeah, yeah. we didn't have dressing rooms uh, and and the actors were just you know getting changed in corners in the corridor between scenes yeah um it was the coldest winter we had had in london for ages so we were coming out at 7 a.m there was no sun it was just snow yeah so and we had really bad reviews. So the next year we present again a lift festival and then the same newspapers gave us better reviews. And then we presented again <laughs> in Edinburgh and then suddenly we had five star reviews from yeah. all the same newspapers. So yeah. I think if anything, the fact that we just were so committed to making it work and make it be the best it could be mm-hmm. in sh- and, and obviously having such a committed team of people, 30 plus people yeah. from Brazil and the UK made sure that we just wouldn't stop until it was excellent. So it's faith, really, that's, that kind of pushed that and a commitment yeah. to working in that kind of community yeah. and building a community in the process of making Yeah, and I guess this, this belief that there isn't such a thing as there isn't an audience for this. Yeah. All it means is that because it hasn't been created, people don't know it exists. Yeah. Once you inform people that there is a proposition mm-hmm. to come and join this group and spend the night awake 
through these various parts of myth of Medea, mm-hmm. they go, I didn't know that existed. Now I know I really want to go. Yeah, absolutely. Which was what happened. And marketing becomes, for me, it's always been a struggle I've had is how to, when you're working with something that's new or when you're working with something that's challenging or difficult is how to how to articulate that and how to get it across. And I, I guess, again, it's been a case of trial and error through Hotel Madeira of how you... A lot of error, yeah. <laughs> how you develop that and yeah. then how you approach that. Because I think there is always an audience mm-hmm. for, for whatever forms you're working with, but it's sometimes about how you try to present it and how you articulate it. And yeah. it's so heartening as well to hear that it's just a case of just keep going and just keep the going. time and the commitment to what you're doing and a real yeah. genuine belief in what you're doing if you're if you're sure that you want to make that thing yeah then it doesn't matter what other because for example once we declared that we we're making another night show they are called in 2009 it didn't matter that we had bad reviews because yeah. it was sold out already yeah absolutely. so before we opened that those people were going to spend the night with us regardless, regardless. of what the press said yeah and so you start making, um, you, you start creating a space which is not mediated by these tired vehicles. Mm-hmm. And also because immersive wasn't around at the time as a term, as an understanding, people were coming to criticize the show. So you have a critic that comes in and goes, <laughs> I'm in this overnight show. And then they write, oh, it's too long. <laughs> it's not too long. It's six hours long because it starts at midnight and it has to end at daybreak. Yeah. That is the point of it. That is yeah. the idea. Yeah. Or saying something about, oh, this play, such and such, is not a play. But people don't say Hamlet's too long. Exactly. <laughs> and just having, and just the amount of press releases we had to put in bold and saying, we're working with the myth of Medea, not the play. We are not working with Seneca or Euripides. We are working with the myth. The myth, yeah. And f- and the amount of times people mentioned Euripides uh, in the criti- in the in the <laughs> reviews were incredible. That must be so frustrating. Yeah, yeah. But in some ways as well, it's really exciting because of course, actually, Hotel Madeira has become a landmark piece of immersive theatre, which other things and a kind of benchmark as well for which other things are held mm. up against now, which I think is really exciting. So. How do you feel about that kind of status and that legacy now that Hotel Medea has? And how does it kind of affect sort of how you continue working with, with that kind of legacy that sits over you? I think that's exactly where doing a PhD and having the Arts Council Fund to look back at it was extremely useful. Yeah. Because that by that point, we had consolidated the practice. We had made it happen on our own, no one got paid, or whenever we got paid, we got paid very little. Mm-hmm. So it was unsustainable. Yeah. Um, the other thing we realized uh, in the worst possible way, but is the way that you realize, which is by living through it, is that we were building this production on the trust that you would be able to tour after that, and then would be able to reward everyone that had been working Absolutely. on this, including Absolutely. ourselves. We've worked <laughs> six years on this thing. Now we can tour and we can get paid to show this work everywhere. Yeah. And in Edinburgh, despite uh, the awards we won, despite getting five-star reviews in almost every publication, despite being sold out with queues outside, despite more than 200 international producers coming in to see it mm-hmm. and really liking it, it couldn't tour. No, I know. Just because of its model. So frustrating because I couldn't get a ticket the first time round and I just thought it's okay because it's now been so 
well received it's definitely going exactly to tour i mean we did do a hayward gallery in south bank center the following year yeah which was one last attempt at surely with this at this platform you know when you get to being the hit of the edinburgh finge mm-hmm. when you get to presenting uh being the first theater show in the hayward gallery ever and everyone was talking about it everyone was talking there were about touts it. outside of hayward gallery yeah. selling the ticket for three times its price. And it's like, okay, surely now yeah. we'll be able to minimally pay for it to tour and for more people to see it. No, Absolutely. didn't happen. So that was the moment when we thought, okay, we've learned a lot about the work itself, the quality yeah. and audiences, but we need to learn a lot more about the model. Yeah. A lot yeah. more. And so that was the point where we decided to merge the companies. Mm-hmm to create a new company model that responded to what we wanted to make next, whether that was continuing with Hotel Madeira or not, and to genuinely look and take however long it took. And again, that process of uh, analysis took about a year and a half. We thought it was going to take six months (laughs) and it took a year and a half of not making work and of just going back and back again to what we wanted to make, how we make work, who do we make it with, what's the model, how is this going to scale? You know, what, what, who is this work for? Yeah. Because that's the, the really frustrating thing when we finish Hotel Madeira is that the, the audiences that we make work for aren't South Bank ticket paying audiences that feel confident and entitled no. to take a risk in that show. Of course, they were amazing audiences. Of course, South Bank was great. But actually, what about those people who don't, venture into theatre gal- uh, theater or galleries, yeah. but who would absolutely love to do something like that. Absolutely. So that was our next stage of work, which has been the last five years. So it's trying to connect with audiences it's just of theatre. Exactly. So audiences. taking the work entirely out of ticketing, we've now returned to some ticketing mm-hmm. for the last five years. So from 2012 until 2017, before we started the Binaural Dinner Date, our work has been in public spaces, in parks, uh, in restaurants, in uh, adult learning centers, mm-hmm. in train stations, with using technology and participatory structures to invite people who might be afraid of the arts yeah. because they don't feel it, they belong there, they don't feel it's for them, yeah. they don't feel they can do it, and encouraging them step by step to feel empowered enough to take over. Yeah. Uh, the event. So that's what we've been doing. And and only now, this year, we're in a position to really launch our next major project, mm-hmm. which, is, which is the Decology. It's interesting because there's been a shift in audience appetite. And I think Hotel Madeira, looking back kind of at the cultural landscape of the time, seemed to be a real kind of moment where there was a shift and there was a recognition that there was a huge appetite mm-hmm. for kind of inclusion, participation and immersion. Mm-hmm. In the theatre, how much do you think Hotel Madeira played in in that shift and in kind of like firing up that appetite in audiences, or do you think it was always there and it just fed something? It's really hard to say, yeah. um, especially because Hotel Madeira was everything we did from two thousand six to two thousand twelve, uh, with the only one other project in twenty eleven we started to make. So. We made and presented Hotel Madeira at various times and countries whilst the shift was happening. So, Mm -hmm. 
in many ways and in many circles, I think, yes, Otamadeh has become a very strong reference. And the fact that now so many uh, writers have kind of looked at the work from different ways. Mm -hmm. And after the PhD, we've been able to speak about it in a way with a real understanding Mm -hmm. uh, of how we were making it, which we didn't know at the time, you know, we were just making it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, so we've changed the terminology that we use, um, the fact that we launched last year the MA Contemporary Performance Practices yeah. means that as a company, we are kind of mentoring an MA from that learning. So we're not creating immersive theatre makers at all. That's the last thing we want. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We just want to use that learning to empower artists and makers to see the potential of creating their own platforms, Mm -hmm. not just fitting into the trends, but going, well, if this is what you want to make and this has a, a kind of personal authenticity to you and the depth, well, just follow it, follow it until the end. Yeah. And it might be that in the first presentation, second, it might feel odd, you might have no one, it might be a flop, you might, but, but as long as you have that, you return to it, you return to it, yeah. you return, and you try whatever form fits it best. And it is about that integrity, isn't it? It's about, as an artist, it's about that fascination with the things that you want to explore and keeping kind of that authenticity that rests under that. I make one-on-one work and, and constantly and perpetually told that it is not a model that is sustainable in any way but there is still things I am excited about and I need to explore and I want to understand and I want to uncover and I want to offer in that one-on-one situation Mm -hmm. so I kind of push against that kind of pressure that comes from it being not sustainable regardless until eventually I will find potentially a form that, that might be. But it's interesting that you talk about the model because this has been a big discussion actually we recently, hasn't there, about sustainability of some of these large-scale immersive models. And there's been a lot of criticism about the reliance on volunteers, about the reliance... Yeah, or low-paid or no-paid. Yeah, so yeah. I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that and what you kind of think about that discussion that's happening at the moment. So Hotama there had to end for that reason. Because for us to keep going after 2012 was to perpetuate uh, a quite exploitative model Mm. for all of us. So in order to serve this hunger for Hotamadea, we had to exploit ourselves to continue. So it was, I guess everyone felt that it was okay for as long as we were getting better at the model and that it had the genuine possibility to take off. So for example, uh, every time we presented Hotel Madeira, we could pay people slightly better, could host people slightly better, but it was never enough Mm -hmm. and it wasn't going to be enough to continue doing it. So that's why we had to end. So that's, I strongly feel like it really depends on the context. If you're building something and you choose one-on-one as a prototyping tool, can be excellent. Yeah. You know, we have now a show at Theatre Royal, which sits uh, 18 people at a round, and we're running around three or four rounds a night. So we mm-hmm. can get up to 72 audience a night, which is, by that's the way, what we had with Hotel Madeira yeah, in the which end. Which is not that bad. Not actually, that that's bad. great. That's not actually that it's pretty decent. But how did audience. we start? We started, and Jaj was very, very clear about this as an artist and a writer. She said, I want to develop the idea first. Yeah. 
And I want to feel confident that the idea and the work is strong enough and good enough before we start scaling it. Yeah, of course. So it was one to two. Yeah. We have one actor, two people on a table, and that was dinner date two years ago, a year and a half ago. Yeah. And then we scaled to three tables mm -hmm. and look at what the issues that brought and talk to our technologists, to our collaborators, the performers, and see, okay, what, what are we losing? What are we gaining? Mm -hmm. What can we do? And everyone fits into that process of scaling with integrity to the idea. Exactly. But the commitment to scaling. It's getting that mechanic. Somehow. Getting all yeah. of the things that sit underneath it right first, which yeah. is often has to be small. And then it's about scaling exactly. that so, up. If it can be scaled up. <laughs> if it can. Yeah. And how. It can't always be. And, and, and maybe it can't in the, in the same way. It, well, we certainly can't in the same way. There is no one size fits all. No, absolutely uh, So it's about in, inquiring and, and sort of posing that idea. Once you know what the idea is and you're committed to it, just throwing at it the different models and potential platforms and, and mm. configurations that you think could give the idea more space as opposed to turn something else. Yeah. Yeah. And so right now we are really happy within a date mm -hmm. and we finally found a model where it can now tour. Yeah. So out of the next 10 pieces we're making, dinner date is the first one that's gotten to that stage where it now functions as a, as a restaurant mm. in effect is yeah. cited in the restaurant is people sat down and hosted as if they would waiting to be seated down, given a menu. And, and so it, we, we basically hack that public space setting mm -hmm. as opposed to taking people to a theater. Mm -hmm. uh, we might have a theater's partner. We might have a festival as a partner. Yeah. But it's essential for us, and it was from the beginning, that dinner dates was about a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And that people that walked in, they would see that as a space they could feel comfortable, yeah. comfortable in. They wouldn't need to feel like they need to know theatre or what it was about, whether they're intelligent enough or There's what. no specialist knowledge required to be in your that everyday social space that we all understand the kind of the conventions and the way that those things operate. And yeah. I think that is often a really powerful way of engaging audiences that aren't kind of traditional right. theatre going audiences because those spaces already come with an empowerment, mm. I think. And in terms of participation then what those incredibly rich and diverse sets of human beings bring to that encounter is just awesome. It, because if you've gone around different immersive theatre circuits and settings, what I am, apart from just bad practice or, or kind of rushed practice, which mm. doesn't look after people that with a, with a sort of expectation you build, the second thing I dislike the most is unfortunately the kind of people that this can attract mm. and many times i've been surrounded by sort of know-it-all audiences um influenced by by different makers and who because of the behavior those makers also um, intentionally or unintentionally encourage yeah. you have those people that just come in they just want it all they just want to open a door and find something and they they're not even looking around they don't even realize there's other people around them. I had this experience in New York when I went to Sleep No More. And um, I had a I flew all the way to New York just to go to a show. I had research funding. I had the worst experience I've, I've probably ever had, actually, an immersive piece of work because of the other audience members. There was this kind of really gun ho full-on, careless, 
a kind of atmosphere and I found it really alienating and really challenging and I just had a terrible night yeah. <laughs> and then I kind of had the pressure I was like I must like this or I must at least get something out of this because I've travelled halfway across the world just to come to this and it was I think because of I don't know whether that behaviour is purposefully fostered or if it's something that just comes out of having that kind of empowerment in that kind of expansive space but uh, yeah I really struggled with the way other audience members behaved during that experience I think that, that's hard. one of the massive learnings we had from Hotama there something we were doing without realizing we were doing is we were mediating the space between strangers really well and we were making turning our audiences into communities into temporary communities yeah. the bond that those people had when they left after that breakfast at dawn mm-hmm. it was incredible and there was sort of we've been friends forever kind of and, and that's the thing, okay, we, we can't remake Hotama Day and we don't want to replicate that model. However, there are things we achieve that we're certainly constantly looking for. It's that communitas, isn't it? Is that exactly. The coming through the ritual, kind of processual, yeah. kind of bonding that yeah. happens when you enter that liminal space together and, and build something And together. also, why, why are we making this work? Like, why are we making this? Yeah. If it isn't to encourage more human behavior towards others that aren't, the same as you, they don't think mm-hmm. the same as you, they don't earn the same as you, they don't have the same access as you do. And if you have that incredible opportunity of people giving up however long they have to be pushed out of their comfort zone, sorry, but you have a duty, you have, yeah. a, you have a responsibility. You can fail, <clears throat> yeah. but you, you, you should try. There's a duty to care, isn't there, I think? And for me, that's really essential. And I, I'm teaching my students this this week, I said, because they want to do something immersive for their assessment. And the first thing I said is, why? What's the value of me getting out of my seat for you? Why would I do that? And I said, I don't expect to have an answer now, but mm-hmm. that's what I want you to think about when you go forward to do this, is why? And you have a duty, even if you challenge an audience, to still do that in a way that is careful and is caring to some extent, so I said to them, the first thing I always ask is, well, did I get anything more out of getting out of my seat than I would have if I'd observed this? Mm. And so I said to them, you need to think about about that. Because I think you can get very carried away, especially with students, I think you probably have the same, they get very carried away very quickly with the idea of kind of doing things to people. Of course, and it's normal, (laughs) is it? They get excited by something they just experienced, they want, I want to make some of that. Absolutely. I did it myself a lot when I was young. (laughs) So I can't, I can't judge, but it's our role to to say, okay, great, do it. Just bear in mind these three things, you know, you know, whatever you propose, you have expectations back. Yeah, absolutely. Whatever people are asked to do, they expect to pay off. The payoff can be in many ways. Oh, it can be self-knowledge, it can be uh, playfulness, it can be... And also be aware, because once you make an invitation, you've made the invitation and people will take it oh, up in ways that you could not possibly have yeah. preconceived. Yeah. But if you make it, you have to be prepared to meet it. But that's, <laughs> uh, again, so it's like, it, this conversation is quite interesting because it, it's not... Um, it's rare that you have a chance to really go sort of in the in the in the timeline <laughs> as to kind of cause and effect. And yeah. one of the things also we've learned from Hatama there, which came out of this desire not to exploit other people and ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we were we were working 
uh, we were living as vampires, really, doing yeah. that work. Yeah, and, and we had a young child at that time as well. Oh. And we hardly <laughs> saw her. And so oh. it, at the end of the time of day, it was a real point of going, that was incredible. And I'm really glad we did it. We wouldn't have done it any other way because it had to be made. Mm. And now how can we be not just look after ourselves, mm -hmm. look after our collaborators and look after our audiences in a model that yeah. serves everyone. Yeah. And so, you know, that first partnership, which was myself and Jaji creating Zaji UK out of Paraktiv and Zaji is now expanding into creating um, a series of artistic associates who are now in Banara Dinner Date and our VR piece and other pieces, which are bringing them closer to go, right, how can this be you know, a model that will sustain, that won't just burn itself over this yeah. three-week run, yeah. but that we are trying things together and we are getting tired and we are making mistakes, but how are we using these mistakes to build a really long-lasting thing? Yeah. And so in the most recent partnership, which we feel very, also very excited about, starting a couple of years ago, was with TAG in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And TAG is a center for uh, game research, uh, technical charts and games. And with TAG as a team, I mean, there's amazing individuals, but we now have developed this relationship with the team uh, and we visited a few times because we, again is looking at each other and going we can learn a lot from you and the other going we can learn a lot from you yeah uh, it's a good timing so and and for us the game design really game design approaches and terminologies really help articulate those things that in arts can get very blurry mm. but in game design it can be refreshingly straightforward yeah which is absolutely. you know cause and consequence player journey you know, the levels, you know, what you're invited to do, what you're allowed to do, how do you tool up someone for the challenges that are coming? Mm -hmm. What's the payoff? You know, all those yeah. kind of well, structural... Always sat under that kind of gaming, mm. the approach to gaming. And I have noticed very recently, just in the last year, I've noticed on marketing, people are starting to call things playable experiences, mm. which is really interesting. Mm -hmm, I'm really mm -hmm. interested in kind of that shift but it ultimately does boil down to the idea of mechanic yeah and it's it's again it's refreshingly logistical and mathematical i've always yeah f without knowing been really fascinated by logistics mm -hmm. and with with interactive work participatory immersive whatever you want to call it if you're inviting audiences to be a crucial part of the thing that you're making and experiencing logistics are an art you you have to embrace them absolutely you can't you can't just delegate them to ushers or or <laughs> gallery assistants it, it, it just is part of the art it absolutely it's got is. to be part yeah. of the art an invitation or a way in which they travel from a space to the next or what signs are up or what information they've been given is completely crucial mm -hmm. to how ready they are to say yes or not to an invitation and if they say yes to have the tools to, to fulfill to and, 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 and grow in that role as opposed to feel embarrassed. Is that, that's what I was going to ask you next actually, is how, you, how do you build this kind of work when you have a constant absence which is the audience and you're building work for an audience, so how you mitigate that. So is that something that comes into how you sort of fit them into development? Yeah, I think the ideal world development also just 
saying this to try to be useful for others who don't have a, a few years of experience of working with audiences. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're starting now, if you recently started and the idea is very fresh, the ideal is getting people in the room and saying, I'm really sorry, this is going to be a bit shit. Please, but please, please. <laughs> just, just let me see it at work. Yeah. And let's see where it fails. Yeah. So the idea of prototyping at every stage is definitely the best teacher. And again, that terminology is brought from, I'm the same, prototyping, beta testing. Completely, completely. comes from that gaming. Yeah, digital development, gaming. And we, we do work a lot with digital developers. So yeah. it becomes a very uh, useful way of seeing process mm -hmm. and development. But when you don't have that, and we rely a lot on that, is past experience, obviously. So, yeah. Jaji today um, is one of the best writers for interactive experiences. And until recently, she didn't even call herself a writer. Yeah. Until we had to go, mate, you are the writer. Like, yeah. you are writing interactive scripts at such depth and care yeah. because of your experience uh, and your skill that that is what you're doing. Yeah. And thankfully you've got that experience to draw from uh, to make it even kind of quicker at developing this because otherwise mm -hmm. you'd have to write it all up then prototype and see oh my writing so to observe prototyping and yeah. intervene live ah, as a way to okay. develop scripts so in terms of documentation do you kind of actively document the work or does it kind of generate its own documentation and how much do you keep? It's one of those really difficult... Well, we try to keep everything. Yeah. And we try to um, use different f platforms to document different kinds of things. Yeah. We also have a relationship with a videographer who's also a technologist and maker, but has helped us in the past few years have at least a decent amount of video footage mm -hmm. and a decent amount of recordings. Yeah. Audio recordings. Uh, but again, it always comes down to having them stored, but not really, either not really editing them yeah. or editing them and not having time to organize them in a way that is publicly accessible. Yes. Or uh, just having, yeah, several hard drives with stuff to be, to be Ready used. Ready to be done, yeah. yeah. It's a kind of guilt, it, I find. It's sort of a weight that sort of is sat there. You're always aware that you have all of this stuff your process has generated that will be really useful and could potentially be really valuable to other people yeah. as well but it's the time and the effort as well to get through that yeah. and also then how much how much do you make publicly available of that that's always a question too and how much do you give people access to when the work often operates on people on, on relying on people not knowing too much as well potentially before they encounter that experience that's right um, so there's always a huge tension isn't there between it these is. two things and I think once we knew that Hotel Medea, for example, wasn't going to be um, available either much longer or at all again, mm -hmm. then we had spent a long time in 2010 making a film of the whole process through different angles. And although we know that the film doesn't tell its full story, that certainly doesn't, it became a crucial element in my doctorate to point at each point of the development of the writing yeah. at a key point in the night and what was happening and at least video footage of it. 
So um, it was citation effectively, it becomes that effectively, kind of support yeah. and citation. The other project we did during the time Hotamade was on, uh, also with this desire to turn documentation into uh, almost an artwork in itself, mm. was called Audiences Documents. Mm-hmm. So we did that at the VNA, and we did that in Rio. With that in Edinburgh as well. And it was basically inviting audiences who had seen Hotamadeh to come back a year later mm-hmm. and serve as live documents of the, the work through their memory. Great. So we'd have audiences standing up in the gallery or in the theatre or whatever mm-hmm. uh, without the aid of any props or images because early on we realised how people um, were less inclined to say things they remember when they had an image to show. Oh, or an object, okay, yeah, they, they, yeah. they sort of felt too much reverence for those things. Yeah. So very early on, we then decided, no, it's only people talking from their memory. And we knew from hearing their memories that a lot of it was inaccurate. Many things they were saying didn't happen, Absolutely. but we did not correct them. No, no. We just allowed them to, again, um, allow people who'd never heard or seen Hotamadeh to walk into that space and hear from them mm-hmm. uh, what it was like. Uh, for them. So it's kind of an evocation mm. in that space. And yeah. did you document those recountings and those experiences? Not as much as we would have wanted to, but we have a series of audios from uh, interviews, especially during the night of Hotamadeh when people were in between sections. Yeah. So we work with associate uh, researcher Joe Dunn, mm-hmm. who at that time was doing that work with us, was basically yeah. getting people in a break to go into a room and go, what's going on right now? Yeah. And then yeah. to have some of those recordings still. Which is great. It, it is really difficult because it is exactly like you said, an art in itself. And it's something that actually needs methodology, needs construction, needs to be carefully considered, needs to be dramaturged as well for it to actually be something valuable. But yeah. then of course it does become something other yeah. to that experience. It can never be that. Exactly. And um, I think commercially at the moment there's a big problem because of this idea of secrecy. So mm-hmm. people don't want to give too much access to their process because they want audiences to come and, and not be aware of those things that are happening. So as an academic, I kind of, and you probably feel the same, I kind of like, in terms of legacy and thinking about 20 years time, there needs to be some kind of organised documentation of the kind of the shift that's happening and the emergence of this work and capturing this work and its legacy and heritage but on as a maker as well there is that kind of I'm only really I find I've only documented what's useful for me or helpful in terms of process and development and then there's always that guilt of thinking well it would be great to have that but actually we need someone on board who would potentially entirely be constructing that as their practice in itself so there's these kind of tensions that really wrestle beneath that. But I do get concerned that there'll be very little documentation mm. other than kind of academic work of yeah. this work moving forward in kind of 20 years time. Yeah, it's even harder. So it's already hard to capture the experience itself, mm-hmm. even harder to capture the making process. Yeah. Well, video yeah. and photographs don't capture someone's experience of that moment because of course it's embodied. Mm. And of course those bodies serve as the document that captures that experience because mm-hmm. it's their experience, but we can't put them, <laughs> we can't store them and keep them in an archive. But I suspect technology will potentially start to offer us some answers for how we might capture those experiences mm. in a more kind of synesthetic mm. or an embodied mm. way. 
But um, I think it's going to take a lot more kind of consideration and thought on how we might start sort of constructing that mm-hmm. history and that legacy for the work, yeah. maybe. <laughs> okay. And do, do you, again, this is a problem in terms of documentation, so trying to teach immersion to undergraduate mm-hmm. students and they want to see video because they can't, mm-hmm. you know, shows have either gone and they can't access it in that yeah. way and they just don't have those resources. And some companies have made videos available kind of, of their work, but the majority haven't. Mm-hmm. And would that be something you would consider moving forward is kind of making those things kind of like public resources so yeah. someone could buy the DVD of the making of Hotel. Oh, of the making. <laughs> if we had that material, I guess yeah. so. But I think our main concern is um, is this commercial appropriation uh, of what has taken us a long time to make. Mm. And although we take every opportunity we can to allow that to be useful for young makers, for emerging makers, for um, people who we don't want them to be trying to reinvent the wheel once we've got some tools. But it's personal, that's the other mm. thing about a lot of this work, isn't it? It's, it's situated and contextualised within that very particular and peculiar process. Mm-hmm. And actually the documentation of it is more in terms of legacy than like publishing the scripts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For someone else to potentially be able to pick it up and put it on because it just would never have that integrity mm-hmm. that comes with it. So I guess that's an anxiety of yeah. the exploitation and commercialization. Yeah, so it's it's not an easy one. But in terms of the work itself, we made the videos of Hotama there available very early on mm-hmm. uh, in full um, via Vimeo and they're still up. So mm-hmm. it, once we do have the, the different elements of the decology filmed, no doubt will make them available as well. Yeah, I think that's a really yeah. a really useful resource. Yeah. But I think with some work, it's very difficult to do that because it's hard to get camera angles on one on one. It's hard and more intimate and small yeah. kind of settings are actually difficult just to capture through yeah, video stuff, and yeah. <laughs> photos yeah. anyway. So that's always really difficult. So at the moment, um, obviously, you're right in the middle. It launched yesterday, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, binaural dinner date. So could you tell us a little bit about, without giving away any spoilers or ruining the experience for anyone who's going to yeah. be coming, uh, tell us a little bit about the work. So binaural dinner date sits within this work that we want to make over the next two to three years, which is the Decology of Loneliness. Mm-hmm. And the Decology of Loneliness will be a 10-part piece that will eventually be able to be experienced in one day. So it'll be mapped across a geographical location. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will constantly be uh, experiences between public and private space. Yeah. And the themes that we're working with are what does it mean to be a man today? Mm-hmm. Uh, issues around mental health, masculinity, um, but also the ever-shrinking um, offer of public spaces we have where people can just gather Mm. without having to pay for it or without having to abide by so many bylaws that in effect becomes worse than a private space. Yeah. Um, So it's sort of a study on um, gathering uh, as people and ways to encourage different behaviours and activation of certain spaces or reclaiming of certain spaces. And Binaural Dinner Dates is the first of the Decology and is 
it's looking at dating as an urban ritual, as a contemporary ritual, as something which is extremely mm, high risk in some ways. Yeah, of course. And it's actually, <laughs> dating is something that doesn't normally sit, um, I guess you wouldn't see it as part of our ever um, like risk averse living and, and sort of hyper security and health and safety and all all those elements of making life as comfortable and safe as possible um, actually without going into artistic experiences dating is a way in which you can really you know perform a role yeah. uh, prepare for an encounter that could go really bad that could go really well we have high hopes you sort of compress all your hopes for your future and humanity yeah. into that place and it's a public space and is a restaurant and is with a stranger potentially mm -hmm. so yeah we're fascinated as one part of the ecology to look at this mm -hmm. this this urban ritual yeah um, and look at those codes both from a playful uh, human deep dark way um, as well as a humorous ironic tongue-in-cheek way so mm -hmm. It's a way of, of really embracing the, the hosting of dates, uh, whether people come as a couple or they come alone, mm -hmm. whether they're really hoping for love or they're just interested in living that role. Yeah. Um, we, our challenge was to cater for all those expectations. You yeah. go, whether you're coming as a couple, whether you, experience, you were expecting a kind of technology and theater experience, mm -hmm. whether you're here because you'd really hope to find Mr. and Mrs. Wright, mm -hmm. we will take that on, that yeah. challenge on, and we will do we'll our best. We'll that, facilitate. I'm excited because I've never been on a date. I met my partner <laughs> when I was very young, and uh, we've been together for like maybe 18 years at Christmas. And so I've never kind of gone through that process, and actually I've been to a, several different dates within a performative context. Uh -huh. So for me, that's really interesting because my only experiences of dating has been through live art speed dating yep, yep. and through dating in performance. So that's kind of interesting too. So, and for me, of course, I bring that baggage with me as audience because I'm coming, one, because I'm an academic who writes about this kind of work, two, because it's something that I'm passionate about, and three, mm -hmm. as a maker who makes kind of uh, interactive and participatory work as well. So all of those things kind of sort of rest inside mm -hmm. and the fact that it's in a kind of a public space as well is something and obviously I went over to the cafe earlier it's mm -hmm. incredible as well it's mm -hmm. a beautiful beautiful space it's the first time I've been yeah so and it's really very uh, open it literally yeah, uh, literally has all sorts of people ages and mm -hmm. reasons why to be there mm -hmm. so and that was the most exciting part for us is to be in a place with an offer where anyone that walks past and is mildly curious mm -hmm. could take that risk and then end up experiencing something that they go, what was that? I had no idea that this existed. I had no idea that this was art. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that I could do this. Yeah. And therefore, I'm going to go now, get my whole family to do it, or get all my friends over yeah. right now. Yeah. So that is the, you know, it obviously is interesting to have the critics, the researchers, the artists down yeah, and sort of really like it and go, oh, that's great to see this work being done. And yeah, of course, that's great. Yeah. But that's not really what we're interested in. No. Ultimately, it's creating a space where you can have extraordinary 
experiences and, and really art of the highest caliber mm-hmm. whilst not putting non the traditional art audiences off yeah yeah and and allowing people to go yeah i could i could step into this well binaurality um, that idea of binaural i think interests of a slightly different audience as well in the technology and that brings different people in and like you said it's a huge big glass window mm-hmm. people will walk past people can see and mm-hmm. hopefully mm-hmm. It, that will kind of entice I mean I am naturally a curious person mm-hmm. so I'm the fool that will take your hand and follow you regardless and walk through the door because that's the kind of playful mm-hmm. person I am but not everybody is that but I think you know they can stand at the window and watch yeah, well, and, I, and then maybe think look into it what was that what was happening and there's more that happens as well that you don't know because you haven't I seen know, it I'm yet I'm so excited but there is another <laughs> strong element of public participation as well oh great so, so it's we're constantly looking at the mechanics and how they can be porous yeah. to allow it to really dialogue, not just with people inside the cafe, but immediately outside as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, so. no, I'm very, very intrigued. <laughs> so I'm very Although I'm one of those kind of converted audience, yes, so one of the, so. le- the less interesting audience <laughs> members. It's such a shame. It's such, it, I wish sometimes I could put it aside yes. to come, to just be kind of like, normal board <laughs> that's our that's our eternal loss is that we can't just experience something yeah no yeah. and i was at the rsc this week and um was in stratford so two two dif- two very different stratford experiences very different, this week very different <laughs> but i was very struck actually by the very kind of particular audience that was there and that there wasn't really a lot of deviation mm-hmm. in that and that always kind of makes me a little mm. sad in some respects because I'm kind of like this is very much an audience you would expect and I like it when it when it isn't yes. <laughs> and when people who wouldn't and for me one of the big problems I think is that in the 1960s there were some really aggressive and terrifying participatory practices mm-hmm. that happened in the name of participation mm-hmm. yeah. and I think we suffer a little in terms of the general public with the legacy that comes from some of that the recklessness of it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that puts people off sometimes and scares people I know loads of people say I would never do anything mm. like, made me do anything mm. that would be awful mm. and I'm like oh then there's got to be a way actually to engage you in a way that actually I think you would enjoy because if you enjoy going to a cafe or you enjoy meeting with your friends or being in a public space there's lots of work actually that would engage you and appeal to you and I think you would really enjoy but sometimes I think it's getting over that barrier I, absolutely, I think participation. Yeah, I think the, when when we decided to sort of formalize things around this terminology of dramaturgy of participation, mm. what became crucial before you get to the meat of it is the most essential, which is what's the first invitation and how do you build that up to a place where you'd ideally hope your guest to be experiencing. And how do you provide all the tools and all the information and all the experiences for them to be from zero, from just a passerby, to that place, to just taking over something, creating, interacting and improvising without the fear that they would do if they had to jump in. So we did that with our real phone hack piece, which was a hacked phone booth in the middle of the Olympic Park. Mm -hmm. You know, the invitation was they walk past the rings. That's very low risk, you know, you see a ringing phone, you might give it a go, you might yeah, pick it up. <laughs> and so, and if you do, then you start hearing some text, there's a bit more like personal and you go, oh, okay, maybe I don't want this and you put the phone down. Yeah. Or maybe you do, actually, let me stay here for a bit longer mm. and you get the next invitation and the next and the next. Yeah, yeah. 
And by the end of one of the phones, uh, you type in your mobile phone, you get a phone call on your mobile, and you're taken for a walk over a bridge looking yeah. back at your childhood. So from a ringing phone to like a really personal sharing of information and, and kind yeah. of how you feel about you as a child, you know, takes a lot of offers. And, and some yeah. people might you know, offer two, they might say, no, that was enough for me, well, thank you. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's building in yeah. those moments actually where someone can step off or step mm. out or turn that mm. down. And it's having those moments built in throughout that process. Yeah, if, if it suits that process, then you should exactly very much do that, especially if it's not being mediated by actors because you can't have that immediate looking after element and the phone yeah. was just a phone, it was just all automated. Uh, and with binaural dinner dates, one again, one of the things that we really committed to, although we do have tickets and we keep them as, as low price as we possibly can to not it's put people off. extremely reasonable, actually. Extremely But even reasonable. so, we constantly have a kind of recruitment that happens on the cafe on the day mm -hmm. for people who didn't even know it was happening to be on a standby list because if anyone doesn't turn up, we invite them for free. So we're constantly, wow. constantly bringing new people in that genuinely didn't expect mm -hmm. to be part of it and didn't pay for it. That is incredible. Because somebody else paid and didn't turn up. They didn't turn up. So uh, this really allows us to feel like we're constantly making that path mm -hmm. open for a, a, a genuine development of audiences, mm -hmm. of non-theatre audiences, but also non-techie audiences either. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because uh, when we started working with technology and games, it, there was a you know an easy tendency to just move from non-theater to then you know techy or, or geeky or yeah. or gamery. Well, there's been a huge resurgence yeah. in tabletop gaming yeah. and LARPing and all of those kind of game yeah. things happening simultaneously. Yeah, and they're very privileged, very white, very male. Yeah, and absolutely. and sometimes as bad as theater, worse than theater. So, of course, we want to welcome those audiences, but we don't want to make it a space where only those people feel confident. No. So they're very welcome and we'll certainly cater for them. Mm -hmm. But we are interested in those that would, would be put off by reading a flyer. Mm -hmm. you know? So we, we, we develop specific ways of talking and approaching people to say, look, there is this opportunity happening in 20 minutes. Yeah. If someone doesn't turn up, would you like to do would it? Would you like to do it? And some people say yes, yeah, some people say no. That's, that is incredible. I think that is just such a powerful way to kind of reach out and mm. do that work. And I'm really looking forward to it. I'm really excited. <laughs> <laughs> I think lots of my students are coming down as well. Excellent. Which is brilliant. And I think because the ticket prices are low, that does make it accessible mm. for people outside of London. Because, mm. of course, then you always have to add on your train. Exactly. And that kind of thing. And if you're paying 60, 100 pounds before yeah. you've even got to get there. And the idea really is from, from March or April next year is to start touring the Great. UK. And do yeah. you have um, venues fixed up for that? No, no, we're just having several conversations. <clears throat> so we're completely open to Well, you can go, you're not reliant on those traditional spaces. No, so we need restaurants. Yeah. We need cafes and restaurants. Absolutely. And who doesn't want people through the door <laughs> in those kind of establishments? Exactly. So that's fabulous. So people... People that are listening, what's the best way for them to keep up to date with news, to follow you? Is it get on your mailing list? Yeah, so time? mailing list through info at zu-uk.com. Uh, it's Instagram or Twitter, which is at imzuuk. So I-A-M-Z-U-U-K. Mm -hmm. uh, Facebook, uh, imzuuk. Um, and website, zu-uk.com. 
Great. And so if you uh, want to find out more, please get onto the website, get on the mailing list, and you won't miss out on anything. <laughs> That's the best way. So I'm, I'm going to bring things uh, to a close because I know you have to rush off quite soon because, of course, everything's going to be kicking off in not too long a time. That's right. So I'm really excited. <laughs> so thank you very much for taking the time out no to problem. talk to me. And we've actually been trying to get together to talk for uh, over a year. Easily. <laughs> Easily. So this has been a real pleasure to manage to do that. And there are loads more things I'd like to ask you, but there'll be plenty more opportunities. I'm absolutely <laughs> sure. <laughs> so thank you very, very much. Great. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I wanted to apologise for the very erratic publication of Tate this year. Well, since September anyway. It's been a really crazy few months here at the Tate Homestead, with moving house halfway across the country, moving jobs... But things are starting to settle down now and hopefully I can get it out to you much more promptly in the new year. As usual, I would love to hear from you. Tweet at me at Tate Podcast. You can post on our Facebook wall or you can email me directly on talkingaboutimmersivetheatre at gmail.com. That's talkingaboutimmersivetheatre at gmail.com. And finally, just to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas and I will catch you again in 2018.